You know, <laughs> that's one of my favorite scenes from one of my favorite movies, and I will come up with any excuse to watch it again, even at church. Uh, you know, when we look to talk about conflict today, one of the things we're thinking about is what does conflict look like at Christmas? And let's just hope that when your family gets together this Christmas, there's nothing like that, right, that happens at any of your holiday get-togethers. The truth is, though, at this time of year, uh, while it can be filled with joy and love and good feelings, Christmas can also be kind of a, a petri dish of conflict, can it? I mean, think about all the holiday parties you have to go to at your office or workplace, at your uh, dorm or your school if you're a student. Think about all, all the places that you get together with other people. And you have dinner or lunch or whatever with people that you normally have no other reason to hang out with. There's no cause to hang out with. I mean, even if we share the same DNA, like we wouldn't be caught dead with that person on most days, but on Christmas, we have to get together. And the Lord, I think, can use this time to humble us um, as we see that person that we see only once a year. And we're thankful for that because more of that can drive us over the edge, right? But still, we see them at Christmas and we're expected to bring them a gift, Like, we only see them once a year. Really? We have to do that? And I haven't even mentioned the conflicts that exist um, maybe under your very own roof. I mean, for you, maybe it's a child that's making poor decisions and you don't really agree with them. Uh, Maybe it's, you know, a stepson or stepdaughter that uh, you you and your spouse can't get on the same page about how to raise them, how to lead them. Uh, Maybe the conflict's with your spouse. You know, you don't understand how you can share a pillow with someone but still feel a million miles away when it comes to making decisions that affect your family. Conflict may be financial. Bills stack up at Christmas, and you can't agree on which ones go unpaid this month. Or it's relational about, again, we're having the discussion about where we're going to go on Christmas Day and who we're going to get a C and who's getting relegated to the 26th or the 27th. Or, you know, maybe they're spiritual. You're trying to turn your life around. You're finding your way back to God, and you know that at Christmas you're going to get together with that family or those people that are going to try to pull you off of that track, that are going to try to make fun of you, ridicule you for your choices. And look, I don't know what conflicts you may have at Christmas. All I know is that we all have them. And so today we're in part three of this series we've called A Great Light. It's based on this verse from the Old Testament book of Isaiah that says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Sorry, the series is called A Light Has Dawned. We believe that that light that was predicted was Jesus. That somewhere around 700 years before Jesus was born, God spoke this through the prophet Isaiah to let his people know well, that help was on the way. You know, that, that, that even when darkness comes, there is going to be a light, he's telling his people, that will guide them, to help them navigate through the darkness. And that very first Christmas, at a time when that light was born, when Jesus came into the world as a helpless, innocent baby, well, that was a remarkable moment. And that's why we still celebrate it today. God sent his son, God incarnate, to represent peace and hope and love and joy and to be peace to the world uh, through Jesus. And so, so far we've talked about how the light of Jesus can turn our anxiety uh, into hope and help us move from sorrow to joy. And today we want to look at how Jesus can help us move from conflict to peace. And so if you have your Bibles, open them to Luke chapter 2. Luke 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the floor around you. And if you don't own a Bible, that's yours to take home with you uh, so you can continue reading with us in this series. We're going to continue looking at this seri- the story of the first Christmas today, but we need a little background before we do. Because many of the Christmas cards we see and even the Christmas carols that we sing can give us a false impression of what life was like around the time that Jesus was born. You know, many Christmas songs can cast a distinctly pastoral glow over that first Christmas. 
Uh, But the truth is the first Christmas didn't feel very peaceful. And so I know that a song like Silent Night, beautiful song, uh, says, all was calm, all was bright. You know, or that little town of Bethlehem says, uh, above thy deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. We may romanticize the fact that Mary and Joseph had to sleep in a stable and give birth there with the animals silently cooing and cawing over this newborn baby. We can easily picture these shepherds gathered in this field around a campfire, warmed, uh, wrapped up in their snuggies, right? Keeping warm, enjoying this peaceful night until the angels quietly tapped them on the shoulder and let them know about this great news that came and then lead them into town. But as we mentioned last week, that's not the reality of the world into which Jesus was born. If you were here last week, we talked about how Israel was kind of a forgotten remnant. It was an outpost at the edge of the Roman Empire. At one time, Israel had been its own nation, but they were conquered by the Babylonians, who were then conquered by the Persians, who were then conquered by the Romans. And so there's a period of several hundred years in there where Israel wasn't even a nation at all. It was just a group of people a uh, group of misfits, maybe an island of misfit toys, we could call it at Christmas. The Roman Empire was a merciless machine. Uh, and as we mentioned last week, there was a brutal dictator named Herod the Great that was put in charge of the people of Israel. But just to tell you how Herod the Great was not great, he heard these same prophecies from these people, of the, the people of Israel had heard these prophecies about this king who was to come. And he was threatened by this idea that another ruler, another king might be born. So he decreed that every newborn baby boy in the land of Israel should be killed so that his future reign could be secured. This is Herod the Great, right? And that's where we pick up the story in Luke chapter 2, uh, starting with verse 1. It says, in those days, Caesar Augustus, who was the uh, emperor of Rome, okay, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And so everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth, where they lived, we talked about that last week, in Galilee, to Judea, to Bethlehem, in the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. So Joseph and his pregnant fiance were headed to Bethlehem, not for a family get-together, not for a family dinner. I know many of you are headed out even right after this service to go see family. That's not what they were headed there for. They were headed for a census. Well, why would there be a census? Why do they need to count and know how many people are there? Well, if you remember from last week, what the Romans really wanted from the nation of Israel were taxes. Right? We said that they were taxed sometimes at a rate as high as 90% or more. And so Rome wanted to make sure it was getting the proper taxes. So they called all the citizens of Israel back to their, actually all the citizens in the Roman Empire, but in this case, all the citizens of Israel back to their hometown where their family was from to register. The government could then compare the tax rolls, tax collections from an area with the population from an area. Right? I get this much money and we have this many people and it could act as kind of a performance appraisal for the tax collectors in the area. You know, if you read the New Testament, tax collectors have a really bad name. Why is that? Well, because they were able to extort money from the Jewish people, and they were often Jewish people themselves. Well, the Roman government could pay the tax or could make sure the tax collectors were getting their pay, getting their fill, if they knew how many people were in an area and how much they were uh, collecting. So I'm telling you, it was a time of real oppression for those people, which is what makes the next part of the story so extraordinary. You know, this baby is born, and then an angel, just like has happened at the stories we happened in the last two weeks. We talked about last week, angelic visits weren't very common, even in the Bible. But during this uh, story of Christmas, there are six times where you can see an angel appears to someone to tell them, so that you can tell this is a big deal, right? Turn to somebody and say, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. 
So just like's happened in the stories we looked at the last two weeks, an angel of the Lord appeared, this time to shepherds in the fields just outside of Bethlehem. So if you skip down to verse 8, you'll see this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone all around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, town of David is Bethlehem, right? We said that he was from the, Joseph was from the line of David. In the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host, more angels, okay, appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, what is this good news that will cause great joy for all people? Well, it's because of what this Savior will bring. You know, if you're familiar uh, with the King James Version, if you grew up in church, you may have heard this, or you watched a Charlie Brown Christmas, you may know that that version says, peace on earth, goodwill towards men, that that's what this Savior is going to bring. And that was really good news, because if there was anything that the people of Israel needed, it was peace. I mean, somewhere around 500 years of rule by other, nature, other nations, brutal oppression through major military power, backbreaking taxes on all of its people. I mean, you have to assume they were thinking, right? What were they thinking? They were probably thinking, ooh, peace through strength. Like this king is going to come and give us great military power. It's going to bring the favor of the Lord back on Israel, probably in the form of a great military force and victory at war. But that's not what happened. And to really understand why, I think it's critical that we understand what God's idea of peace really is. And so the word that's translated here as peace is actually the Hebrew word shalom. You know, we read it as peace, but that's really not the fullest meaning of the word. See, when we think of peace, we think of an absence of conflict, right? We think of two people getting along. We think of two nations getting along as peace. It's an absence of anger. It's a lack of stress and noise and chaos. We can be lulled into thinking peace is a peaceful night sitting by the fire, reading a nice book, when all around us there's sickness and stress and family strife. But shalom isn't about the absence of conflict or the absence of noise. It's the presence of wholeness. That's what that word really means. It's, the, it's not the difference between fighting and truce. It's not the difference between unity and divisiveness. It's the difference between brokenness and wholeness. So to give you a picture of this, I just want to read a short excerpt from Tim Keller's book called Generous Justice. He uses uh, the great Christmas classic, It's a Wonderful Life, as an example of shalom. He says this, in the Frank Capra movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey and his family run a savings and loan company in the small town of Bedford Falls. Hello, Bedford Falls. Bedford Falls, New York. Over the years, they had helped innumerable families get mortgages at fair and reasonable rates and had been patient and caring when loans couldn't be repaid. As the CEO of his company, George's bottom line was not maximum profits, but the flourishing of his community and his customers. George, of course, did not get rich with this kind of approach, but at one point in the movie, when he is suicidal, he's given a vision of what Bedford Falls would have looked like if, as he wished at the moment, he had never been born. What he sees is a community consisting of some wealthy families surrounded by an impoverished, dysfunctional town. Instead of kindly neighbors, there are brutal and self-interested parties in constant conflict with one another. Without George Bailey's efforts, the town had lost its social shalom. 
When the society disintegrates, when there is crime, when there is poverty and family breakdown, there is no shalom. However, when people share their resources with each other and work together so that shared public services work, the environment is safe and beautiful and the schools educate and the businesses flourish, then that community is experiencing social shalom. When people with advantages invest them in those who have fewer, the community experiences civic prosperity or social shalom. See, in the beginning, when God created everything, there was shalom. All was as it was designed to be. There was shalom between man and God, between man and woman, between creator and created. All was as it was supposed to be, with beauty and peace and wholeness. But that only lasts for about two chapters of the Bible. Because with one bad decision, shalom was obliterated. Sin entered the picture and creation became broken. And all the rest of Scripture is about the time between this brokenness that happens, the brokenness entering the earth, and the day when all things will be restored to wholeness, when all things will be renewed. The rest of the Old Testament points to this eagerly awaited Messiah who would come and restore shalom or wholeness to God's creation. So this news that the angel brings to the shepherds is really the best news possible. When they show up and announce Christ is born, what they're saying is, He's here. Finally, the time has come. The moment that you've been waiting for is now. The one who comes to repair what is broken is here. The one who comes to restore all things and make all things new, that one is here. Born in Bethlehem is the one who will bring you shalom on earth. And man, if you don't know Christ yet, if you're here and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that is why you need to come to know him. Because he comes to restore what is broken and he can bring shalom into your life. Even as an adult, Jesus reiterated that this was his purpose on earth. It was not to defeat the Romans, not to resolve the conflicts, but to bring wholeness to the earth and to God's people. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, these words, originally from, again, the Old Testament book of Isaiah, are a quick sketch but probably the best paragraph we have in all of Scripture to describe true shalom. Good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, sight for the blind, freedom for the oppressed, all things being put back in order, the broken becoming unbroken, the original design being restored. On that first Christmas night, the angel is bringing breaking news that shalom has arrived in a place in desperate need for it. Well, that's great, Steve. Goody for them. But what does that have to do with me, with my situation and my conflict? I'm going to leave here today, and I'm going to face somebody that I don't really want to see, and they're going to talk about how I'm raising my kids. They're going to talk about how I'm living my life. And what am I supposed to do with that? You know, I do believe that uh, Jesus cares about your struggles and your conflicts um, because whatever you're going through, I, I, I would imagine that you wish God that would just step in and fix it, right? Make it go away. I wish I could reassure you that that's what's going to happen, but when Jesus came, all the world's struggles didn't go away. The people of Israel were still oppressed. That's not what peace means at Christmas. I do believe, as we said last week, that God wants to walk us through all of our challenges, that he wants to be with us. I believe that that's why God sent Jesus to earth, so that he could come and walk with us through our struggles. I do believe now that sometimes God will miraculously change our circumstances. Right, we've seen that, you know, as a result of a person's, a faithful person's prayer, 
God can come in and change circumstances. We see that happen um, all the time. So don't ever stop praying for a miracle. He is the God of the miraculous. He often puts things back together when they are broken, seemingly beyond repair. But often, we're left not with a miracle, but just with hope. Hope that one day, as Revelation says, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. When the chaos and conflict and brokenness of this life will be no more. But until then, I think here's what peace on earth means for us. And these are in your notes if you want to follow these two along. Uh, First is this. It's peace between you and others. You know, Jesus came so that we could personally, you and me, all of us in this room, that we could personally experience a peace that Scripture tells us surpasses all understanding. That even if I could tell you what that felt like, you you wouldn't get it. You wouldn't know it. You couldn't understand it. It's a piece so deep and so amazing, so otherworldly that it could only come as a result of the supernatural. It's a piece that we can experience even in the most chaotic times in our lives. But Scripture reminds us, too, that peace came not only for us, but that God intends to extend peace through us. That, that God came, just as God came to extend peace to us when we had broken the relationship, we are designed and expected, if we're followers of Jesus, we are expected to reflect God's love by working to make peace with others in our lives. Here's what this means. If you are a follower of Jesus, even if you're brand new to church, you don't really understand much of the Bible, here's what you need to know. You are called to be God's peacemaker this Christmas. You're called to do that. So while you're here fretting and worrying about seeing that person this week and the awkward conversations and the fake smiles, just know that the other person is just as nervous about that. But by choosing to be a peacemaker, you can flip that script. Matthew 5, Jesus says, But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Like there's some relationship, some cause and effect between the way we love our enemies, the way we treat our enemies, And the fact that we are recognized as children of God. That the way you love those who persecute you will be a telling sign to other people that you are a child of your Father in heaven. Many of you have heard of a Catholic monk from the 12th century named Francis of Assisi. He's known for his passionate work with the poor. And he's the man after whom the current pope uh, took his name, Pope Francis. Well, Francis believed that being a peacemaker was essential to the Christian life. And way back then, 12th century, Francis prayed this prayer of transformation. It says, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. Grant that I may not so much seek as seek to be consoled as to console to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love. For it is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Amen. And you may not recognize how much difference the attitude of one person in a family or in a neighborhood can make. But the truth is you can be an influencer. And especially if you're a follower of Jesus, and especially if you're one of the few believers in your whole family, you have the potential to set the tone for the season. And I'm talking about, yes, if you're the host, absolutely you can. But even if you're not the host, you can be the tone setter 
at that Christmas dinner. It's like the, the realtor that listed a house in a particular neighborhood and he showed it to one couple who complained about many of the details of the home, but they ended up interested in it. They wanted to put an offer on it, and they said, hey, to the realtor, one last question. Before we put an offer on this home, um, what are the neighbors like? And the realtor thought for a minute, and he answered them with a question. He said, well, tell me this. What are the neighbors like in your current neighborhood? And uh, the husband said, well, they're rude. They're, they're not at all friendly. They, they close their garage door immediately when they get home. They never you know, return what they borrow. And then the wife added, and they gossip about everyone behind their back. And the realtor said, well, I'm afraid that you're going to find that the neighbors in this neighborhood are exactly the same. And then the next day, another couple came to see the same house in the same neighborhood, and they were thoughtful and considerate as they toured the house together. And they asked great questions, and they listened to the realtor intently. And after seeing the house, they were interested. They wanted to put an offer on it, but they said, we have one more question. What are the neighbors like? And the realtor responded with the same question. Well, what are your current neighbors like? And the husband said, oh, yeah, they're great. I mean, we do everything together. We cook out together. We play cornhole in the backyard. And yes, said the wife, and the women look out for one another. We watch each other's kids when needed, and we get together at least once a week to catch up. And the realtor said, well, I think that you'll find that the neighbors in this neighborhood are exactly the same. How would it change your life this Christmas if you viewed your role as the peacemaker of the family? I mean, instead of worrying about the conflict, if you sought to head it off, what what if you prayed that prayer of Francis or a similar one before every office party, before every family dinner or, or simmering argument? What if instead of fueling the fire, like we can sometimes with our words, what if you decided to quench it with kind words and understanding in the light of Jesus? What if you showed genuine interest, even in the most mundane details that you've heard repeated time and time again on the phone, And time and time again, and they talk about this every year, do I really have to listen to how brilliant their child is? Do I really have to listen again to the results of their surgery? Do I really have to listen again to this conversation? What if you decided to confront that with love and peace? How would that change not just your life, but the attitudes, the relationships of everyone around you? But shalom this Christmas doesn't just mean peace between you and others. It's also peace between you and God. That the peace or shalom that the angel told the shepherds about that first Christmas, probably to their great disappointment, wasn't the liberation from the Roman government. It wasn't about curing some relational turmoil or emotional strain. It wasn't even at its heart about curing conflicts between people. Instead, the peace that took on flesh in the form of an innocent baby was about making things right between mankind and God. Between me and God. Between you and God. Now, I know this may sound strange to some of you, and you aren't sure you need this. You're already a good person. You know, you're already kind to others. You treat people right. You give to worthy causes. You live a good life. And Besides, God loves everybody, right? So we're good. We're good? That belief flies in the face of the very radical nature of Christmas. Yes, it's true. God loves everyone, but our very relationship with him was broken by sin. Our choices... Our decision to turn our backs on God injured that relationship with him. That even when we live good lives, even when we think we do everything right, and all of us from time to time, we put other things ahead of our relationship with God. Scripture reminds us, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, you may not believe that. You may think you're good enough, but God's standard of good enough is perfection. Maybe this will shed some light. Colossians 1.21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. 
Your evil behavior. Now, Paul wrote this to a church, all right? He wrote it to people in a church, people who were desperately trying hard to follow after God, to a group of Christians, reminding them, in effect, that, hey, nobody's perfect. In fact, he says all of us were once enemies to God, that though he is a loving God, our mistakes, our sin, leads to a broken relationship that needs repair, that that we all need help in healing that relationship with God. And because of that, God sent Jesus on a mission to not just bring peace to this world, but to be peace to this world. Ephesians 2.14 says, For he himself is our peace. So the question for you this Christmas is, have you embraced the peace, the the shalom that God sent into this world in his son Jesus Christ? Have you accepted his free gift of salvation and love and hope that he sent when the Messiah, the Christ, left his perfect home in heaven and came to a sinful, broken world so that we could have shalom, that that peace, that wholeness that God intended. Have you ever done that? Have you found your way back to God? Have you made peace with him? As we uh, prepare to close our service today and and go into a time of communion, I just want to give you all a chance to make peace with God. Uh, We're going to close our eyes and bow our heads here in just a second, and I'm going to say this prayer, and I want, if you believe this, I want you to repeat this prayer after me even if it's your first time or if it's your thousandth time. Let's just go into a time of prayer right now. Would you just join me in an attitude of prayer? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And I would love for you to pray this out loud with me if you believe it. God, thanks for sending Jesus into the world. Repeat after me. I confess that I have sinned. I need your grace in my life. I want to receive your peace in Jesus and his payment on the cross on my behalf. I commit my life to you today. Lord, fill me with your spirit. Give me courage to live my life for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have the opportunity this morning to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made, not just on Christmas, but on Good Friday when he went to the cross for us. And we do that through the taking of communion. Here's what we believe about communion at Genesis Church. Anyone who believes that Jesus came to earth for you and lived a perfect life and died a horrible death for you can take communion with us. You don't have to be part of this church. If you're visiting from another church and you believe that, you're welcome to join. If you just prayed that prayer, you're welcome to join us. If it was your first time, Congratulations. Welcome to communion. If it was your thousandth time, um, let's just keep this moment special. Uh, In just a minute, the band's going to start a song. As soon as I step off the stage, you're welcome to go. We've got four tables, two in the front and two in the back. They're all identical. And when you grab the elements, you'll notice there are two cups stacked together. The bread is in the bottom. You'll take that first. represents the body of Christ broken for you. And then the juice is in the top, which which represents the blood of Christ spilled for you. Uh, The band's going to sing a song. You're welcome to Take your time and just take that in your own, in your own time. Uh, and then uh, join us in a time of worship through song.